Welcome to My Life, Chassidah Supplied, episode 200. Masayim, 200 episodes. Being that this week is Chov Be'i Shvat, the 22nd of Shvat, and it'll be the 30th yard site from Tov Shin Memches, Shnas Tismach Tesamach, the year of the Estalkus of the Rebbe Chaim Mushka. So let me begin sharing a few words about that special day as well as being that it's also the week of Mishpatim and Parsha Shkolim, which will be read next Shabbos. We'll speak about that as well, as is the custom to begin with living with the times. So 30 years ago, on the, the 22nd of Shvat, was the passing, the sad, tragic passing of the Rebbe Tzachayim Mushka. All of us who were there remember the deep impact it had on the Rebbe, obviously, but also how the Rebbe openly grieved and openly demonstrated his, um, his loss, which is the loss of all of us, to the point that um, he actually asked the Rav, Rabbi Pekarsky at the time, whether the connection of a son-in-law to a father-in-law is still there even after his wife passes on. Of course, Rabbi Pekarsky immediately told the Rebbe, absolutely. But it's very reminiscent when you know the stories of the Tzamech Tzedek and when his Rebetzin passed, Chaim Mushka also, same names, and also five years earlier, Tafresh Chof Aleph, and the Tzamech Tzedek's Estalkos was Tafresh Chavov, the Tzamech Tzedek famously said, and sadly said, that a king is not complete, a king is not a king without his queen. And of course, this has both implications in the highest levels, the highest worlds, and also in the, in the physical worlds, and the Rebbe made it clear that, that when he sat Shiva and different people tried to console the Rebbe and the different tzetlach and different notes that people wrote, the Rebbe referred to the Sanhedrin of Eshes Nu'urim, a wife from young age, what kind of impact it has on a person. And of course, a Rebbe is a, is, is a Rebbe, but still, the impact is Beruchnis, Begashmis. So obviously the question is, what lessons do we derive from this? Because in Chassidus, in Torah in general, Chassidus particularly, there's no such thing as just a negative. There's sadness involved, even tragic sadness. But nevertheless, everything has to be turned to a positive, as the Rebbe then did. He turned it, he established Keren Chomish, which is the Rosh Hatevis of the Rebbe's name, Chaya Mushka Schneerson. Keren Chomish, which was a gemach for particularly different needs and gave charities. He then also, the Rebbe then also, just a month later, Chav Zayinodr, I'm sorry, Chav Pei Shvat, the next month, Chof Hei Adr, was the birthday of the Rebetzin. She was born on the 25th of Adr, so the Rebbe then established, even though it was already being done, but in a very formal way, the concept of the Yemelad is celebrating a birthday. On the Rebetzin's birthday, he used that to turn that into a birthday that everyone should celebrate with a bunch of directives, how to celebrate a birthday. Chof Hei Adr is not just incidentally, but also connected. It's also the birthday of the world, according to Rabbi Yeshua. So there's an opinion that actually the world was created in Chafei Odom. Just to demonstrate that everything has to be turned and transformed into a positive, which is the whole essence of what Chassidus is about. Life has its challenges, it has its ups and downs, it has times when of concealment. But like we learned from the moon, the moon lately in the, been in the news, that the moon waxes and wanes, and as it wanes and is just about to go extinct, it is reborn again. And the Bnei Yisrael, Jewish people, are compared We are renewed as well. So everything is turned into a renewal. And the Rebbe actually did that, even though we saw the impact. But 
the same time, how much was added. And when you look in the different talks that the Rebbe delivered, the subsequent years, tremendous ideas. And one I'll just shortly chazer was the last one, Tavshin Nun Beis, the Eisata, that the Rebbe spoke regarding Chobbe Shvat, and actually became a kuntras, Becho Yevorech Yisrael, Becho is the letters Chov Beis, which is also the 22 letters of the Hebrew alphabet. And the Rebbe began that Sikh then, and then actually gave out that edited Sikh in a, came out in a kuntras, and the Rebbe handed it out, and as one of the handouts that was common during those years, of the Kuntas Bechayivarich Yisrael, a lavender color, cover. And there the Rebbe speaks about the power of Chavbez, that Bechayivarich a day that through it and in it, and through it is, everyone is blessed, Bechayivarich, with all the blessings that are included in the 22 letters of the Hebrew alphabet, which of course encompass everything from Aleph to Tov, 22 letters. The Rebbe goes on to speak about the different Kufis, the different stages in, as we get closer to the Gula, the stage of Yud which this year, 68 years ago, when the Stalkus of the Friedrich Rebbe, the stage of Yud Alef Shvat, when the Rebbe assumed leadership. And then in Tov Shem Amchez, the Rebbe said, was a new stage that began, Chav Beis is twice Yud Alef. Of course, the Rebbe's birthday is Yud Alef. So 11 times 2 is 22. I'm not going to go over the whole Sikha. What I want to focus on, the Rebbe spoke about the name of the Rebbe, the name Chayim Mushka. He said the name Chayim Mushka means Chayim is from the word vitality. And mushka is from the word the musket, the perfume. It's one of the third, it's one of the yudbeis, one of the 12 spices that was used as the ketatus. So it has a very strong scent. It's a perfume, a beautiful, beautiful odor, a beautiful aroma. And the Rebbe said, because in making a dira betachtenim, in making a home for the divine in this world, and each one of us does that in microcosm in our personal homes, there's the actual building of a home that simply creates shelter where you have the basic elements, a roof over your head, the protection from, the, from nature, from, from the wilderness, from, from uh, hostile forces. But then there's another element, and that is making a beautiful home. A beautiful home, that's what the Isha, the woman, does. She has the chaya, the vitality in the home, and the aroma, the reyachtev, that brings a, a spirit, a vibe, that is unique and special. And to make a dira betachtem, it's not just enough, the, the bare minimum, but to actually make a beautiful dira no, a beautiful home, that expands the mind of the person, the beauty. There you have right there a lesson that is applicable to each one of us from the Rebetzin's name, and of course to each woman building her home. But it's a lesson to all of us in every particular circumstance of how we shape the world in which we live. It's not just simply enough to do what's right, but to do it in a beautiful manner, to do it in a pleasant way, to do it in a way that leaves people uplifted, feel revitalized, chayis, and feeling that they come in, you go into a home, you feel a beautiful scent. It just has that type of effect that impacts. And the Rebbe speaks about that in more detail in that sikh. Additionally, I want to just share one or two stories connected to this as well. When the, when the, when the Rebbe passed away, so of course people consoled the Rebbe, there were different consolations, and, and the Rebbe responded. There's one particular note I would like to uh, uh, comment on which was written in English, actually, by the widow of Irving Spiegel. He was um, the religion editor in the New York Times for a number of years. So his wife wrote to the Rebbe and on the day, March 15, 1988, and the Rebbe responded to her. Um, he responded in Hebrew, but he wrote to send her a letter that translates what he responded in English. Here's what she writes. Most revered rabbi, 
Please accept my deepest sympathy at the passing of your beloved wife. I wish I knew what to say that would help ease your pain and grief. What words of comfort are there for me to give you who have comforted so many of us? Sincerely, Esther Basara Rivka. The Rebbe responds by circling the word after she writes your pain and grief. What words? So the Rebbe writes, question mark, words, and I'll read exactly what the Rebbe's word response is. Maiseha. No, words, as opposed to words, the Rebbe's questioning, not words. Maiseha, your actions will console me. She said, what words can I use to console you, someone who has consoled so many and comforted so many? The Rebbe says, your actions. Be yese almona, being that you're a widow. Nevertheless, mamshicha. And you continue. Bechaim Yehudim Davke, in a Jewish life, living Jewishly. And the Rebbe continues, Shebe'eshe karti baila olav ha'shalom. At the time when I recognized your husband, olav ha'shalom, and levod l'chaim tevim, meaning separating you who's alive from your husband, that was his ideal, a Jewish life. That itself, that in itself is idud, it gives strength and, and the support. So she's writing, what words of comfort are there for me to give you? And the Rebbe responds, words, question mark, not words. My sir, your actions, underlined. What a beautiful letter and a beautiful response, which of course for each of us is the lesson is very clear. What do you have to do from Chav Be'i Turn it into actions. The stronger you commit yourself to a life of Chaya Mushka, to a life that she represents, a life, of course, as a daughter of the Friedrich Rebbe, a wife of the Rebbe, and the, the queen of the Rebbe, that is the best way to console, and that's the best way to strengthen and to perpetuate and build. So there we have a straight directive. Another interesting note that I saw that the Rebbe wrote to someone, this was to Rav Gavriel Sinner, who wrote to the Rebbe different things he observed when the Rebbe sat Shiva, that he wanted clarification or different lessons. So one thing he writes to the Rebbe that um, he mentions, of course, the Rebbe Tzachayim Mushke, Bas, Maran, Yosef Yitzchak, the Rebbe writes, circles, or directs the name Chaim Mushke, says, Begimatri Ace. The Gimatri of Chaim Mushke is the number 470. And then the Rebbe writes in the parentheses, in the brackets, a question. Great wonder. In Rashi, in Kehelis, Gimel Beis, Kapitel Gimel, Pasuk Beis, Kehelis 3.2, Rashi interprets, there's, the, there's of course all the aces are counted there, the ace time for this and a time a season for this, a time for that. So the Rebbe says, by, when it comes to ace, and I'll just read the Rashi itself, when it comes to the different aces, when Rashi comes to ace, Loledas, it says nine months, the time to give birth, that's nine months. The ace lomus, God forbid, time of death, it says, the measure of years for each generation. So the Rebbe says, the Pelagodl, that he teaches ace, al on a generation. And number two, opposite of what he just said before, that is connected to an individual. An individual gets born in nine months. It doesn't say generation of birth. And by death, it comes to a generation. The Rebbe doesn't answer, but it's an interesting question, and perhaps something deeper lies here, of course, 
in the context of the generation. And if you look at the Sikh of Tavshinun Beis, the Rebbe says a generation ended in Tavshinun Ches, a stage ended. And the Rebbe turns it into a whole stage in the preparation for the Geula. If you read there, you'll see it's the Habshacha of Gulakus, the divine that's even higher than existence. Because Yud, 10, represents the structure of existence, which in Chesidus is called Mamalaklam and the divine presence as, it, as it's tailored to and it defines the structure of existence. And Yud Aleph always represents transcendence. And twice Yud Aleph is the transcendence of transcendence as he explains there. And that's why it, it represents the 22nd of Shvat, a new generation, a new Tkufa, a new period. Perhaps the Rebbe is hinting to that, but the bottom line is the Rebbe asked that question. I want to read it regarding Chav um, Shvat. It's always good to share something that has not been shared before. So with that, we have many lessons, as I said, and uh, some of them I mentioned, and many more that we can all derive from the spirit of the Rebbe Tzachayim Mushkin and her 30th Yotzeit. So regarding the year 30, since every year is, of course, the Yotzeit is when the Shama goes up to another level, another dimension, 30, when it turned 30 years from Yud Beis Tammuz, the Geula of the Rebetzin's father, the Friedrich Rebbe, in Tovsh Yud Zayin, the Geula was in Tovresh Pei Zayin, 1927. In 1957, Yud Beis Tammuz, the Rebbe spoke at length about Vahibish Leishim Shana, which is a Pesach from Yecheskel and Davedis HaKedish from Meir Ibn Gabay, the famous Kabbalist, where he explains the 30 years, Shinui Shana is from the word Shinui, change, which means a year encompasses all the seasons, all the changes in the season. The 30 is all the different possible changes that can happen in any person's life. 30 years captures all those changes and then starts a completely new period, as the Rebbe explains. It's already printed in the Kutisichis. If you look in volume four, the end in the Esophet by Yud Beis Tammuz, you could find the Sikha, the Rebbe edited it at the time. So 30 years is a special period. It's not just another year. It's a, it's a new stage begins. And of course, in our case, it's a new stage of Chav Beis, a new stage which can only get, bring us closer to the Geula, a new stage in all the work of the Rebetzin and the Rebbe together. As they, as I said, partners, even though the Rebetzin could say it was a silent partner in more ways than one, but nevertheless, equal partners as the Rebbe made it very clear so a number of times. Actually stated that she also can give brachas, b'chayyavarach, Brachas to Rebetzin as well, just as the Rebbe can. Okay, with that, let's move over to Mishpatim and Parsha Shkolim. So that year, 30 years ago, that Shabbos, which was after Gimel, after Chav Shvat, first initially the Rebbe was sitting Shiva, of course, in his home on President Street. And the word was, what came with the Rebbe is going to remain there for Shabbos. There won't be a Fabrengen, even though that, though that year, those years, there was a Fabrengen every Shabbos. But Friday, sometime, late morning or, or afternoon, the news came, good news came, that the Rebbe is coming to 770 and will fabreng. So that mishpatim, the Rebbe fabreng, it's edited, the Mugadi Kasicha. I had the merit to prepare that Sicha. It was, of course, very, very moving fabrengen because of the circumstances. And the Rebbe, of course, discussed it openly. Chayit Nalibi, the living shall take to heart. And lessons from that, and actually, Eila mishpatim. In Zayar, Eila mishpatim, which means these are the rules, these are the laws. He talks in Zayar, says, the Primis Atera says, these are the laws, these are the guidelines, these are the, the Mishpatim of Gilguli Hanishamis. Meaning the journey of the souls. Gilgulim literally means, it's translated sometimes as reincarnation, but it means the journey and the transmigration of the souls, is the better translation, in my opinion. So the transmigration of the souls, and talks about it in the context, obviously, of the Rebetzin. 
And that Pasha Mishpatim. And among things that Rebbe spoke, Mishpatim therefore has that lesson besides what it says in the in Chumash. Pshat talks about the laws that are the laws first to Evadivri and other laws that the Torah speaks about, all practical laws that are regarding the laws regarding uh, transactions, regarding uh, ownership, regarding the servants and so on. And then in Primus Atayr and Zayr, it talks about the laws of the rules, so to speak, of how the souls travel and transmigrate. Shkolim, of course, the famous question, why Shkolim, as opposed to all other donations, which is according to the amount that a person can give, a tithe, tithing, whether it's a maiser, a 10% or 20% chemish. When it comes to Shkolim, it says that everybody gives the same amount, one half a shekel. So Pasha Shkolim is begin to be read this Shabbos because it's Shabbos Mavarchim Adar, blessing the month of Adar. And on Adar, Shkedesh Adar, in the time of the Beis Amidus, they began to announce about giving the Shkolim for the annual contribution for the Karbonus Sibur, for the public offerings which were bought with these Shkolim. But the insistence there is that it should be a shekel, every one a half. The wealthy should not add, and the poor should not give less. What is the significance of it? So Chassidus, of course, talks about this at length. The significance is, is the partnership we have. We are not complete alone. We bring a half a shekel, and Hashem provides the second half. And same thing among people. That we, are, we do our job, and the second half comes from another, so it demonstrates you're not complete alone. The Rebbe and the Rebbe were a machsis shekel of each. Shekel HaKedosh together. And that's one unit, Pla Gufa, which demonstrates, of course, how not because one Chaz Rishalm is missing without the other, but on the contrary, it's more than the sum of the parts. It's the understanding of the complete Tzalem Elikim of the Rebbe is together with the Rebbe. So when you talk about machsis shekel, the lessons, of course, is our interconnection. And even with Hashem, we say, like the famous Torah of the Magid, you shall uh, craft uh, two trumpets. So he says, Chatzetzeres comes from the word Chetzitzudas, half images. Everywhere, one half image, the Neshama, and the other half image is Tumasi, our twin, is referred to the Eberster even, that there's a twin because we're partners in this, in this uh, mission. Hashem provides the resources, God provides the resources, and we stand in front of the counter and we use those resources to transform this world into a dira, a dira no, a beautiful home in this world, this material world. So there we have something from the Pashen, Chavbe Shvat, in 30 years. Let us move now to, since we are now in the last two weeks of the essay contest, I want to encourage you all, Til Reshchei Oder, Friday, 11.59 a.m. Is the, is the due date, of essays, so you still have more, almost two weeks to write the, your essays, which are, all the rules are, and you can find all the guidelines at MeaningfulLife.com slash contest. And you can win $10,000 first prize, $3,600 second prize, $1,000 third prize, and a special track for students, only that students can win $500 in addition to those other prizes. It's very exciting. The momentum is there. People are sending in essays. You definitely can win. It's specially made in a way that everybody has an equal level playing field. And I want to share, in the continuation of discussion last week, a few more tips, perhaps, that can, that can help you build the confidence and, the, and help you actually create a winning essay. 
So I discussed last week about internalizing a mimer, talked about the Yechidus from Rabbi David Raskin, the fascinating Yechidus where the Rebbe speaks about applying Chesidus into Bechein. So a few tips that I'll just throw out there, which is only suggestions that, that perhaps can help. A lot of people have the, how do you get, how do you begin, where do you begin? So I discussed last week a few different ways you can begin. You can begin from a personal experience. You can begin from um, events in the world. You can begin from an academic field that you're interested in. Of course, you could begin with a mimer. So talking about a mimer, so a few people have asked me, a number of people, more than a few, have asked me, listen, do I have to convey the entire theme of a mimer? The answer is no. It's perfectly fine to take one paragraph, one idea, work on that, much more better one idea than take a whole mimer. It doesn't mean you can't take a full mimer. So one tip I would say is any mimer chassidus you've ever learned, or you can just open and begin one even if you haven't learned one. Derech Mitzvah is a very good place to begin. The memorim there are, are, are easy, easier to be understood. The mitzvah of Avis Yisrael, for example, is, is, is relatively accessible more than other memorim. And other mitzvahs in Derech Mitzvah Take something, read it, learn it with someone else, and just derive one thing, write down in English for yourself a short summary of that idea. Even before you start the essay. You'll be surprised as you internalize it and relate to the idea that really resonates with you. Then see if you can associate and say, what can I learn from this regarding something that say happened yesterday in my life or my family's life or at work? This is a simple tip that, that can create the best possible essay because you're taking the idea, you're, you're internalizing it, you're, in, you're in, integrating it and you're applying it to some given situation. That's one practical tip I'd like to share. Another one, which actually I saw in a number of essays that were really very successful, was, as we spoke about, starting with a personal experience. Any experience in life, whether it's a positive experience or a challenging experience that you've grown from, and this could be marriage, this can be having a child, this can be at school. Let's say at school, you know, you may have been shy, may have, been, may have seen bullying, you may have seen positive things, Identify something in your life that was a significant lesson. And even before you have the chassidus of it, identify it. Write, write down again a paragraph of what that experience was. There's no one on earth that doesn't have an experience that's worth writing about. Then ask around and say, what does Tater say about this? What does chassidus say? What does the Rebbe Zasicha say? And there's no problem. You could ask around, ask people who, who you trust, who you respect. And again, find something that matches that. That's the way to begin. So instead of sitting and just theorizing, find something concrete, whether it's a concrete piece in a mimer or something concrete in your life, and that is a tremendous way to begin. And many of the essays, the successful essays, did exactly that. They fleshed it out, and they did it in a very full way. Because I've seen a lot of people get stuck. They try to write some type of thesis of a very comprehensive scientific approach even to solving a problem. I would suggest the opposite. Start with something small and develop. You may be, by all means, develop it into a model, develop it into a methodology. But it'll be a lot easier and less daunting and overwhelming if you begin this way. Instead of trying to find the big, the big, the big answer, the big story, and working your way back, it'll often become you get stuck there. Now again, if, if you can do that, God bless you and do it. I'm not suggesting anything to stop anyone from doing what they're already doing. And the way, if you feel confident and successful, by all means. I'm just suggesting if people are having stuck, you're stuck and you're not able to get out of it, begin small. And that small can become tremendously powerful. I want to give you another tip in writing 
I, I often, when I write, I often begin writing the last sentence first. What's the takeaway message? Think about takeaway message. And it creates a crystallized type of focus. They'd be amazed that you can work your way back and say that I have to give this takeaway message is what I want to convey. And then build, obviously, to it and build the beginning and build the middle. But often taking the takeaway message like what you'd like people to go away with in one sentence, in two sentences, in five sentences is key. It's another way, another trick of the trade, as they say, in writing a successful essay. Writing in general, but it's particularly also including a successful essay. So everyone should be blessed. Hashem should give you the mazel and the atzlacha, but the yegi gaitu metzosi, that you can definitely win this contest. And I'm excited and look forward to see the, the essays. The judges are, 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 um, are anticipating and very high alert to, to, to read the essays. And we're all very excited to, to this shlav, this stage of turning chassidus into something, uh, applying chassidus in a way that addresses issues and really creates new, pro- new approaches sometimes novel approaches, sometimes revolutionary approaches, and even sometimes ideas that have already been stated, but in a new way that can actually help yourself and others in living our lives aligned with the kavon el with the purpose for which we were created. Okay. And as I said, the essay contest, all the information you can find at MeaningfulLife.com slash contest. You'll find there the rules, you'll find the guidelines, how to submit, and remember again, follow the guidelines. After you're done, make sure that you go through the checklist. Did I cover everything here? You cannot imagine how many essays would be far more improved if people did that. And show it to someone to read. It's always good to get advice, to get someone else's feedback. You can only make your essay better than it was. Now, with that, let us move to some new questions. Question number one. Well, this new question number one in this, uh, in this um, episode how do we determine the validity of a Torah teacher? Oh, before I continue, I always forget this. I want to cross-reference times I spoke about Chav Beishvat as well as Mishpat and Mishkalim. So in episodes 55, 101, and 150, and you'll notice it's all in 50s because Chav Beishvat is basically every 50 weeks or every 52 weeks. So episodes 55, 101, and 150 Discuss Chav Beishvat, and episodes 55, 105, and 150 was Mishpatim and Shkolim. Now, just to remind you, the archives are all available, MeaningfulLife.com slash MyLife. You'll find there all the archives, the 199 archives. They're all time-stamped, which means you can find the exact subject you're looking for and go straight to there. You don't have to listen to the entire thing. You can download them as podcasts. You can listen to it in a car or jogging or in your own your own private space, even if you don't have a computer. And as well as the essays are there, and as well, other essays of the previous years, I should mention, as well as a forum where a completely anonymous forum where you can submit any question, comment, without any concern of identity. Um, And we will attempt to address everything here. And I want to mention the questions that are coming in are quite, really been many questions coming in the last months. So I'm trying to get through all of them. So if you have a question you submitted and you have not heard a response yet, be patient. It will be addressed, literally going through all of them. But we have to, can't do them all in one week. So it will take some time and be patient. I also try to connect them sometimes to the time in which we are in. So now, how do we determine the validity of a Torah teacher? Dear Rabbi Jacobson, I speak French and I like learning online from a French rabbi. I don't want to say his name in public, 
He teaches Hasidus and other classes, but he has a very particular style and he easily gives his opinion. My husband doesn't like me to learn from him. He says he's not down to earth and that he's kind of crazy. I acknowledge that he's a bit particular, but most of his teachings are very interesting and helpful to me. What to do in these cases? Okay. So this is a particular question, but let's broaden the question because we have had in the past and I've had different questions. I Also, people have asked me orally. And that is, how do you determine what's the, who's the right teacher? Let's say you're hearing something from a teacher. It sounds great, but something's rubbed you the wrong way about the person or the teaching or whatever it may be. Or in this case, you're dealing also with a husband that has concerns. So how do you determine? How do you determine? How do you pick and choose? Very good question. I will also refer you to episodes 15 and 75, where I've addressed related issues about teachers, dubious teachers or questionable teachers and their sources and so on. So let me answer the question broadly and then we'll go more specifically. We have Thank God Atayda and we have Chassidus that talks about what to look for in a teacher, what to look for in a mashpia. When the Rebbe established mashpiyim and then Nasei L'Charav, he spoke about Bashanim, Rachmonim and Gemle Chassadim, interestingly. When he started Dvarim Tav Shem Envov in the subsequent weeks and months and years, that they should have the three Simonim, which every Jew has, but it should be prominent in them. Bashanim means bashful, shame, that they have an element of, of shyness in a way, a little humility, Rachmanim, compassionate, and Gemli Chasodim, that they're, they're, they're giving, they're benevolent. Interesting that the Rebbe should connect it to that. The obvious reason is because when you're trusting someone as a mashpia or as a Rav, it's not just that they know information, that there's also a human side to them that you recognize their Bashanim, that they have a certain reserve, a certain element of modesty, and Rachmanim, compassion, and Gemil Chasam. The question is, does that apply also to a teacher? The que- well, obviously, yes. Because remember, when we're talking about a teacher, especially in Teir and Exodus, a teacher has to be a role model, has to be an example. It's one thing, you go here a talk, someone giving you real estate tips, or how to sell on the internet. So fine, there you may say, I don't even like the person, but I like his ideas and I accept them. But when it comes to learning something that's Teir or Exodus, it's meant to be personal. Famous story of the Friedrich Rebbe. When he came to America, one of the things he was fighting for in Jewish Chinuch was two things. That the, that the, the, morning, the morning should begin with Limud Kedish and later go to Limud Echel, start with the Hebrew Jewish lessons and then learn secular. At that time, it was the opposite. To show the priority that you begin with uh, Limud Kedish. Second thing is that the teachers that are teaching in the Chadarim and the Talmud Teres in the schools, the Jewish schools, should be Shemrei Shabbos at least publicly in front of the students. So when they were sitting and discussing it, one of the, I'm not sure who, one of the people in the Board of Jewish Education said to the Friedrich Rebbe, listen Rebbe, ignorance is like a fire. When you're putting out a fire, who really cares whether you're pouring clean water or dirty water? At least you have water. So even if it's dirty water, meaning the teacher is not completely the way he should be, and he's doing things that are opposite of what he's teaching, at least, at least he's putting out the fire of ignorance with the water. And the Friedrich Rebbe, without missing a beat, responded, that's fine when it's water, then even dirty water. But what happens if it's kerosene? Because when a teacher teaches something and then behaves contrary to what they teach, that is like kerosene. It's not like dirty water putting out a fire. That makes the fire worse. Because then you learn from the teacher that what you learn in the book doesn't mean you have to follow it. And sometimes it may be better not to learn it than to learn from someone who's not living up to what they're teaching. 
Now, does that mean every teacher is perfect? Obviously not. But in a public, blatant way to do something counter to what you're teaching is not appropriate. So coming to a teacher, the few criteria I would throw out, and then we'll go to this specific question, is number one, that you have someone that has Yiddish Shemayim. Not just knowledge, not just even experience, not even ordination, but Yiddish Shemayim. And how do you see Yiddish Shemayim? You see it in the demeanor, in the behavior, in the humility. I often tell people who are just beginning their journey, I say, if you hear something from a teacher that doesn't sound right, very, very uh, respectfully, ask the teacher, what's your source? What's your source? So one teacher, one response may be, who are you to ask me? They may not say it, but with their body language. Or they may even say it in a condescending way, who are you? A newcomer asking me, the authority. Another response may be, I have no source. It's my idea. I just came up with it today. And the third response is the, the most legitimate one, and maybe the only legitimate one, is the teacher will humbly and very kindly show you the sources. Here's where I took it from. Here's how I interpret it. They will allow you to retrace the steps and to so-called verify it and duplicate it even, or ask another rabbi. Because there you saw the foundation is there's humility in the teaching. It's not my wisdom. It's the Torah's wisdom. It's God's wisdom. And I'm a channel to share it with you. You can pick up right away from a teacher if that's coming across. What about teachers that are arrogant? Okay, look, as I said, no one's perfect, but if the arrogant gets in the way and it really disturbs, then that's not the teacher for you. Some would argue maybe you know, no teacher should ever be arrogant. But in case you see something that you feel a little arrogant, listen, human beings are human beings, but if it's consistent and it's getting in the way, then you don't, who says that should be your teacher? Find someone else. Regarding this individual, it's very difficult to talk about a person I don't know, and I wasn't there, and I'm not even sure what that means, that he's a kind of crazy, or um, my husband doesn't like me to learn from him. He's not down to earth. So here you're already dealing with, with the particulars which, as then, I'm not familiar with. I would say the following. If a husband and wife talk about something both ways, if the wife is not as comfortable for whatever reason that the, the husband was learning by somebody, the teacher of the husband, or the other way around, in spouses, spouses care about each other. Unless there's some agenda that you feel that spouse has some prejudice against someone, then you could talk about that. But it's worthwhile usually taking the advice of your spouse and wondering what they may see something you don't see. You could always check with another person. Doesn't mean you have to talk to Hashanah, you don't have to say a name. But some people, people know the person, the reputation. And again, I don't know the circumstances. Down to earth? Look, some teachers are not down to earth, but they're very good teachers. They're just not practical. So maybe you can derive something from them. Obviously, if you can find a teacher that's more down to earth. The reason I'm qualifying what I'm saying because it also comes down to what options you have. You may be in a city where there's the only teacher around. There's the only teacher you really respond to. So to say because it's lacking, let's say, down to earth, should you not learn there? I wouldn't say that. I think you need someone to help you bring it then down to earth using that expression. Um, and you're saying he's very interesting and helpful to you. I would discuss this with your husband. If necessary, talk to your mashpia or talk to someone, a third party. But I would not just say to your husband, I don't want to listen to you because maybe he has a point. Maybe he's touching, hearing something, sensing something you're not sensing. And remember, usually when there's smoke, there's fire. Sometimes you sense things. And sometimes a person has different issues. So I'm not going to go into all possible issues. But the different situations, a person as a teacher has, has a responsibility. They're in a position of power. And they can sometimes take advantage of that, sometimes knowingly, sometimes unknowingly, sometimes not recognizing the vulnerability and the receptivity and the, 
and the, um, the formative nature of the student who's like accepting everything the teacher says, because there is an element of Kabbalah sale when your teacher teaches. So these things have to take, you have to take care in these and be careful because you want to really be able to have a positive experience and not have any negative experience looking back with any regrets. And I'm not hinting to anything horrible, terrible. Obviously, there is, we all know those scenarios. I'm talking about even on a subtle level. And it's important to find someone like that. I will add one more key point. I already alluded to it, but I'll say it more specifically. Every teacher, especially of Teir and knows their sources. If you hear someone teaching and you ask them a source and they can't tell you sources, you right away can be suspicious. What means suspicious? Not of the person. He may be a great person. But the idea is, if you can't find the grounding for it, and it's just very vague, then what's happening is there's no reality check. It is so critical to have grounding. That's why if you look in the Lakutis Sichas, in the Sicha from the Rebbe, even without learning or reading it, what, do you, what jumps out at you the first thing? The hundreds of footnotes. The Rebbe insisted we should even make a footnote when it said, Bereshis, Bara Lekimis, Hashemayim Vesaretz, Bereshis, Aleph, Aleph. Genesis 1.1. Everyone knows where that verse is. Because the idea of grounding in sources. And then you can see, and even Rabbeim did this, the Rebbe did it. And all the Rabbi Tzemach Tzedek was adamant in doing that to all the Maimorim of the Alta Rebbe. Because then, besides the fact that you can find the source, then you can see, here's the source, here was how interpreted. Here's, if I don't understand something, I go back to the source. And you look at it, and you can then, you find that grounding. Besides the fact that the whole Teda is all like all knowledge, is accumulative. Accumulative. So what we learned today comes from those before us and before that. There's plenty of chidushim, but when you compare it to the Beis Yosef, to the Tur, to the Rambam, to the different commentaries, you see the, the richness of it, and you see how he actually looked at it. You could see through his eyes how he looked at all those sources as he developed the Shulchan Aruch and how he adjusted something or changed something went with one shita, a different approach, and so on. So sources are the, the true, honest, a reality check of all academic studies, even the Havdal science or medicine or mathematics or any other of the physical, social, or, um, or political sciences. And Teda, the Havdal, how much more so, all built on one generation after, after the next generation. Ish me pi ish. Meshach kibbal Teda mesinai. Mesodah le Yeshua. Yeshua liskenim. Meskenim le Nevim, etc., etc. So what you have is a chain that can be literally traced and that's a vital component in a good teacher. A person who not just teaches you the ideas, but also shows you the sources. And finally, I'll make one more point, even though I'm sure there are many more, methodology. An excellent teacher is someone that teaches you how to stand on your own feet. Himidu talmidim harbe, as it says in the beginning of Pirkeyavis. What himidu? The Rebbe asked the question, it should be yilmedu talmidim harbe. Teach, educate, yichanchu. What does it mean, himidu? Himidu means to raise up, they should stand. Because the key is not just to give information and data, but to make the student stand on, stand on his own feet. Shalheves elameleo, that the flame rises on its own. Like we learned in the beginning of Baal Eschah. And the lesson, not just to ignite, but to make sure that the student, even when he's not in the presence of the teacher, or she's not in the presence of the teacher, can understand and develop and find answers. So we're not just dependent on the information coming from someone, but knowing how to access that information, how to retrace the sources, how to apply those sources, how to interpret the sources. The midis, the yud gimel midis, the 13 methodologies with, with which we interpret teda, the mastery of that. So this teacher is, 
is negay benefesh. The teacher is invested to make sure that the student doesn't just go away with a lot of knowledge, but goes away with tools, instruments, and methodology how to solve a problem. That is the true sign of a great teacher. Because then the student becomes a teacher as well and becomes a ripple effect. Teacher, student, student becomes teacher, the next generation student teacher, and on and on and on. And that's how the Torah was perpetuated from generation to generation. Okay. Next question. Why did God create the world for his pleasure at our expense? I have a question. I grew up in Beis Rivka and always knew the reason we are here, etc. Now that I've been immersing myself in chassidus and classes as an adult, I find myself perplexed and feeling frustrated with the purpose of the creation of the world. Can you please address this in a class? Why the heck, I'm just reading as is uncensored, would God create the world out of pleasure? I'll explain. That seems to imply that this world is for the sake of pleasure, God's pleasure on our expense. What kind of motivator is that for me to want to live according to his design? And as a role model for us, as a role model for us, what kind of lesson is he teaching us about how to make decisions and go about our daily life? I appreciate your question, and I'm a little surprised you say you're learning Siddhis, immersing yourself, and that's the question coming up. So I'm not sure who your teacher is or who you're learning with, but let's just put things into context here. First of all, God is the creator and we are the creatures. So even if we don't understand, the bottom line is God calls the shots, not we do. Whether we understand why God created the universe or not, God created us, gave us a gift of life. So it's a little arrogant to say, why is he created and, and, and is he being selfish or whatever, and they don't use that word, but in a sense, just uh, God's pleasure at our expense. That's on a very basic level. That's number one. Number two, if God gave us a gift called life, why do you think it's at our expense? And do you think that God's pleasure means that he wants to have some fun? What you're doing is anthropomorphizing, you're turning God into some type of like individual lahavdil, a human being, and they say, it tells you, go do something for my pleasure. And I don't really care whether you like it or you don't like it, and even if it's painful to you and you go through challenges in life, I have pleasure from it. You can imagine that when you say God has pleasure, it's not that type of pleasure. When we say, that God desired and has pleasure from making a, for us making a home in this material world. And yes, it's, it's, it, deals, it, it comes with struggle and difficulties and challenges and sometimes very painful ones. It's not that type of frivolous type of pleasure. It means that, like the Al-Tareb explains, a taiva is a desire that transcends logic because logic wasn't created yet. It's trying to explain that there's a desire, and it's using as a muscle desire, but never to think that God's desires are like our desires. If anything, our desires evolve from God's desire. Now, this needs more discussion, and I've discussed it in other weeks. What does it mean that God desires? But to suggest some type of dismissive way that this is God's pleasure at our expense. On the contrary, had God not created us, we wouldn't be here, and we wouldn't have the blessing and the gift and the, 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 the awesome gift of life and all the joys of life and the ability to make a difference in this world and the ability actually to fulfill God's desire and plan for this world. And yes, bring pleasure to God and to everyone around us. So it's at our expense. On the contrary, the fact that there are challenges, so that we need to study why there are challenges, why does it sometimes appear so difficult. But we also know no matter how difficult things are, God does not ask us to do something we don't have the power to do. 
So the question of good and of, of why good things, negative things may happen to good people is another discussion. But never dismiss it in this, uh, in this uh, dismissive way. What's the motivator? The motivator is that you have the ability not just to do man-made temporary things that last for five minutes or for a lifetime, but you have the ability to create eternity, to immortalize your life because you're doing something what God wants you to do. So to suggest, what, 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 tell me something that's more motivating than that. Any job you have, could be for money, it could be for momentary pleasure, it could be, but it all, it all is temporary, it's impermanent. The only thing that's permanent is fulfilling the mission for which you were sent here. So I suggest you have to go back and learn a little more about what a soul is, why a soul was sent to this world, what is the deeper pleasure on a deeper level when a when person struggles and comes away and achieves something like he says in Tanya, Matamim, when he talks about transforming something that's bitter into sweet, the power of that. That there's a beautiful element to us making an effort and not just getting everything as a gift. Growing into adults where we make an effort. Effort always comes with struggle. Effort always comes with exertion, with effort. And yet there's Adam Reitz a person has more pleasure with one measure that we, that we earn with our effort than nine measures that is given to us as a gift. The different explanations in Chassidus, the Rebbe's beautiful explanation when the Shnash Hashivim, that, that God gave us the power to be creators, that we shouldn't be recipients and we should be ashamed just to receive, but to be creators and the pleasure that comes from being a partner with God in creation. So we can talk on more about this. And the lesson from that, you ask, what kind of lesson is he teaching us? He's teaching us that we too should empower other people and give them the ability to also bring pleasure into this world. Pleasure meaning, again, not frivolous pleasure, but a deeper level. And how we go about our daily lives is as well doing the same thing exactly we learn from God how to give the gift of life to others, how to inspire others, how to educate them, how to motivate them, beginning with our own students or children, families, and so on. So I hope that answers that question. And now let us go to the next question, which is how can we get men to be more refined in their approach to marriage and family? How can we start a conversation and a peer pressure Amongst men to be more edel, edel means refined, and to be really good husbands and fathers. I find that girls are taught a lot about marriage and building a home, and we are taught in a very idealistic way. How is the most sacred and special thing, etc. And we continue to have talks and refresher courses all the time. Men, on the other hand, only have a few classes when they're already engaged, and that's it. So there's an imbalance. And in general, women are naturally more edel, Refined again. So all of these things come easier to us. For example, intimacy being about connection. But it's not a cultural norm for men to have such talks, and they definitely need it more. At a recent Junior Nishay event, one rabbi spoke about marriage, and he mentioned how many people call about their husbands watching things that are damaging the relationships. So why is he talking to us? Let's call meetings of men. Yes, a woman has tremendous power to affect her husband, but, but, you could use, but we could use a little help. Okay. Thank you for being so direct and blunt. Obviously, I need to uh, balance this a bit. Though I read all the questions, it doesn't mean that I agree with every word that says here. And, and though there's points you've made, and I will address that, but let's make it clear. There are men that are extremely refined and edel, and there are women that, unfortunately, are not so refined and edel. So to make one sweeping statement of all men 
are in this category and all women are in that category is not really fair and simply not accurate. I'm not here to point fingers. I'm not saying who's who. Just that, that's number one. All of us come to this world, which can be a very difficult world, a very hostile world, and we develop all kinds of sometimes shark tools that make us aggressive, make us belligerent, can turn us into sometimes something not very idle as we fight the wars and battles of life. Some of us have personality issues. Sometimes we grew up in homes that were angry homes, insecure homes, people resentful, jealous, nishvaginas, schadenfreude in German or English, not, not giving someone the, the feeling that, feeling bad if someone else has something good going in their life. So there's a lot of factors which I'm not going to go into in all the details. So there are many things that cause people to become not so edel, even though by personality, I mentioned by Shonim, Rachmanim, Gem Lechasadim, those are the three edel, most refined qualities of every Jew, of the Umazu, this nation, Israel. Modesty, compassion, and Gem Lechasadim, kindness, acts of kindness, generosity, benevolence. But, as I said, life can cause every person to become bitter and have an attitude that's not so edel. So we all need it. Naturally speaking, yes, it says in Svarim that women have more amuna and have an edelkeit by personality. They are more gentle, more nurturing, which also fits with their physiology, fits with their psychology, which is that they, uh, they, they carry a child. You need to have sensitivity to do that. And they are the primary nurturers, especially in the early years. And they have that quality, the gentleness. That's why Hashem tells Moshe to speak Loshan Raka more sensitively with women. And that's not because they're more fragile. Women can be, frankly, more tough and more powerful and more resilient. But their personality is such. Now, we all know men and women both have overlap and both have to have both elements. You have to have a certain toughness and strength in this world, but you also have to have an edelkeit. Now, to address what you're saying, is it true culturally? Yes, culturally, men are fighters, and sometimes the way they bond in their childhood and so on turns them more into comp- competitors. And they say, if women ran the world, we would have world peace already in Mashiach here. Men can be very competitive, very egoistic. That doesn't mean a woman cannot be, but generally speaking, some of the points you make are accurate. I just wanted to qualify. So my response is, absolutely. They should have much more conversations with men, and not just when they get engaged, but throughout lifetime. I, I could say completely with without hesitation, that I wish in our yeshiva, when I went to yeshiva, we had teachers who talked to us about edelkeit, talked to us about being calm, how, how not to get angry, how to not be jealous, how to be clean, how to be refined. Unfortunately, there's not enough of that. The whole chassidus comes to teach us how to be mevarer hamidus, birur hamidus. What's birur hamidus? Refinement of your emotions, character development. The 49 days between Pesach and Shavuos is dedicated to the 49 chesed, to Malchus, seven times seven emotions, refining them. But often we have a dissonance, it's not being taught in a way that's applied, that's personalized. It's a general concept. So absolutely, women and men, but let's speak about the men, they definitely can use it. I don't know if there's enough, I don't even know if they're limited to how much to have classes, programs. One of the reasons I do My Life Chassidus Applied, which is for men and women, is precisely that, to take Siddhis and teach it as, and use it as a tool, an instrument to become more refined human beings. Refined between ourselves and how we behave privately. Refined how we behave with our friends, colleagues, and, and strangers. 
refine how you behave with your spouse, and refine how you behave with your children and grandchildren. That's what chassidus, that's the evan abeichen, that's the litmus test. So I couldn't agree more, and I have no excuse, I'm not going to explain it. It's part of the culture which needs to be corrected. What can each one of us do? First of all, even if you don't have a collective communal uh, response, you can begin on your own, have a class. If you're a wife that has a husband you think needs more idlkeit, maybe have a conversation, maybe talk about it in an inspiring way, not in a critical way. Maybe create a little group of three, four people, five people, and always take the message of chassidus and apply it to your personal life. What would you look like taking that idea in chassidus? What would it make you, makes you look like? Encourage your husband to write an essay and apply chassidus that way. $10,000 is a good incentive to be a little more refined. So this is something that goes around for all of us. We're all in the same boat. We all need it. We need it for ourselves. We need it for our children. We need it for our marriages. And I can't say enough that I totally agree that whatever can be done has to be done. It is a little ironic to get women together and talk to them about how men are crass and to start putting it on the women's shoulders that they're, because they're crass and they're immature, you have to become more mature. Women have real responsibilities, fine, but you can't let the men off the hook. They have their responsibilities. So I couldn't agree more. And thank you for that note. And if anybody has to, wants to add to this uh, it wants to enter the fray and add more to this discussion, by all means, meaningfullife.com slash my life and post your comments, questions, um, statements, and so on. Let's do a follow-up. Follow-up is Chabad Shul. Last week we spoke about whether to daven, someone asked about daven in a Chabad Shul or non-Chabad Shul where it's easier to daven, it's slower and more, more, uh, more conducive for this individual who's going to Shul. And I responded... I never saw a note from the Rebbe directly and no one has sent anything in. However, I stand by what I said, which is that davening is davening. Whatever works best in Veda Shebelev and speaking to God is what, what matters here. This isn't about a, it's not a club. It's not about a Chabad club or non-Chabad club. It's about davening properly. And you do what you have to do to daven the best way possible. So a follow-up goes like this. I know this might open a can of worms, but when it comes to schools, the Rebbe responded on many occasions that people could choose, should choose a Chabad school specifically. I wonder if there's a similar idea when it comes to a shul. I'm aware that the Rebbe encouraged people to choose a home close to a chassidish shul. Does that mean Chabad specifically? I'm not sure. Just probing here and adding dimension to the question. Very good point. I would first of all distinguish between a shul and a school the following. A shul is a personal experience for you to daven properly. A school is the shaping of the personality and of the values and the ideals of your child. Chabad, chassidish teaches certain ideals and values. It doesn't take away from other schools teaching other values. But, but obviously, if you have the choice to send them to a Chabad school because it teaches those values. Now, if you say, I have, t- I have a Chabad school in my city and it's a terrible school, it doesn't teach anything good. There's another school that's not Chabad and I think it will give them a better education. That's a question that can be asked. Even there, they're ever probably, because you don't have a school that you can say it's completely terrible. It probably may not be as good in certain areas, but it may be good in other areas. I've seen this. I've seen people take their kids out of a Chabad school and for the reason that more academic, more challenging, even more Teda knowledge and had other issues that it was lacking in that school. The foundational elements, the Yusaydis, Amuna, the things Achsidis gives. Is there, a, is there a school in this world that's perfect? Absolutely not. But I would distinguish it in that way because the shul is a very different thing. Again, we're not talking about a shul becoming a member in a shul. We're not talking about the the social element. We're talking about pure davening, as I discussed. 
Um, however, I'm open to hearing other op opinions, obviously, and how to address this. But this is what I think about it. And uh, with that, let's move to a little more about prayer. I've been talking about Aveda Satfila. Last week we began. And this refers back to episodes 18, 19, 20, and 140, and last week 199. So a lot, a lot of questions on Phil. I will just move every, every episode. We'll cover one more question, one more thought. And hopefully, as I've said, Tfila is a key, key, key foundational element in Chassidus. It's what takes the ideas of Chassidus and turns it into a, a refined application. Refined, because it's Aveda Shebelev. Chassidus is meant to refine you and does refine you as well. But davening is Aveda Shebelev. That's where it's emotional maturity the emotional intelligence which lies in the power of davening, of taking the ideas of Chassidus and applying it to yourself and, that, and refining the person. So here's another question that came in. Hi, Rabbi Jacobson. I wanted to continue the conversation you were having the last few weeks on the topic of tefillah. I believe the discussion started with someone asking, why don't we daven today the way Chassidim used to daven barichus at length? I think before answering the question why we don't daven today at length, I think there's another question we have to ask first. What is the definition of a chesidish davening? What is the definition of a chesidish prayer? I just want to enumerate some of the terminology describing a chesidish davening that I heard growing up and over the years. Tefillah barichus, tefillah ba'aveda. To daven with hamayim chesidus, to daven with pirush hamilas. He's going through a list of things. Tefillah barichus means long davening, not quickly, but deliberately and taking your time. Tefillah ba'aveda means working on yourself, a davening that is with an exertion of really working on yourself. To daven with a maimer chesidus means having learned a maimer before davening, to daven with the kavonis and the intentions and the ideas that that chesidus, that maimer chesidus taught. To daven with pirush hamilas is yet another element of davening. To daven with meaning reading the words, understanding them, that, uh, translating them. That you know, push the to read and understand what you're saying, not just uh, lip service. Aveda satfila. I don't know the difference between that and tefillah baveda. When using this term, are we talking about lit oh? When we're using the term aveda satfila, are we talking about literal davening, or this term refers to a general refinement of our character? Okay, it's a good question. Let's see what you continue writing, and then I'll respond. His button is before davening, which I think is meant to develop feelings of av and yira within the davening. That's a contemplation before davening. So he did a pretty good summary, this writer, of the different elements that Chassidus talks about, how davening can be done in different manners. So Rabbi Jacobson, please explain the above terms and what really makes a Chassidus a davening. I think the reason why davening by Veda today is not so popular is because of the Rebbe's focus on Mifzoyim and Shlichus which some Hasidim interpreted to mean that Aveda Satfil is not for our generation. I once read in Kfar Chabad magazine that the Talmidim of Rabbi Shleim Chaim Kesmul Olav HaShalom convinced him that Tefillah is not for our generation to the point that Rabbi Shleim Chaim wrote to the Rebbe asking if that's the case. The Rebbe answered him in a letter something to the point that everything that Abayim taught is in place and current. I don't remember the exact words. Thanks and Hatzlach Okay, a few key points here. I'll make them. And then, as I said, this is a continuing conversation. I'm not going to go through all the different meanings here, but I want to answer the thing about general refinement of our character. Aveda Satfila, I would say, is a general name for Aveda, the effort or the work. Aveda is a word that usually means, Ibu means the effort goes into davening. 
So I think it includes all the elements. Whether a person is reading the Pirush Amilas takes effort. Whether they're learning a mimer, they're learning with they're davening with a mimer, or they're davening with um, with uh, at length, or the kavanah of refinement, or the kavanah of fulfilling what God wants and becoming more emotionally connected to your Jewish Jewish connect to your neshama and to the neshama, the connection to Hashem. That to me goes all under the rubric of Avedis Hatfila. What, what has to be determined, each person has to find what works for them. Pirush Amilis is a very good place to begin, especially take certain prayers where you focus on the meaning of that. And how far that meaning goes depends on the person. Find something that speaks to you, that, that, that uh, excites you, that energizes you, that makes you passionate. Because at the end of the day, if learning is learning what God wants, Tefillah is committing to what God wants. It's a commitment, and a commitment is emotional. You not just... You could, for example, go to classes, military classes, and not, not choose and choose not to enlist. You learn, you know it all, you know military strategy, it excites you. Enlisting is an emotional that you emotionally say, I'm on, I'm in. So Tfila has that element of, of, of his kashras where you're connecting yourself to what God wants of you. And that can go very many levels. Some of us begin, you can begin on a surface level, you can go deeper. And really, each one has to find their thing, which goes brings me to Shlomo Shleim I've heard it a number of times. The Rebbe said many times that Tefillah absolutely not, nothing has changed. Did the Rebbe add the activism involved with Shlichus and Mivtzoim? Absolutely, because of Pekoch Nefesh or other things. But adding doesn't mean subtracting. Now, if you have a choice an hour and there's somebody drowning, obviously you can't be Barichas Tefillah because you have to save that person. But the Rebbe wanted everything. He wanted shluchim and he wanted individuals, no matter who we are, to daven properly. Because davening will only, not only help you and what you need to do in your connection with God, it will also help your shlichas. And it will also help your work. Whatever it may be. So there's no question, as Chassidim asked the Rebbe, is there any change regarding this? The Rebbe said, absolutely no change. So, Suffice it for that. For now, we'll talk more about this in the coming episodes. Let us go to the Chassidus question of the week. And that is, Chassidus question of the week is, Svarim Daimim, does the inanimate world feel things? Okay. Would it make sense to say that a safer that was placed incorrectly under another safer actually feels bad and is ashamed by it, based on the following? We say that bread is embarrassed when it is tossed or left on the floor, meaning there's feelings involved with the consciousness of the bread itself and not just its appearance to the public as being an embarrassing concept. We also say that daimim, daimim is inanimate, is conscious of its own existence and knows it's fulfilling its mission to stay put in one place similar to what we discussed about atoms recording sound, etc. That atoms can actually absorb sound. Maybe quantum computers will shed more light on this when they figure out how to use subatomic particles to be used as zeros and ones to store data, and the concept won't be so far-fetched as one would initially think. It's known that plants, uh, plants are more excited to continue living when they feel happier with their surroundings. This may be contributed, contributed to the maloch Sar nefesh of the plant, meaning the mazel that each plant has. Esav, Esav doesn't grow until the mazel says it should grow. When we talk about different levels in holiness, such as those found in different svarim, would it make sense to say that the more kedusha an item has, 
the more conscious the item is of its surroundings and its godly importance and would be more hurt when placed under something of lesser value similar to the bread examples above. P.S. This wasn't intentionally written in connection with the Safer episode someone mentioned to you in Shul. This was a conversation I had with someone. But I'm sure there's Azrocha Pratis at play. If the Sfarim stuck in Russia actually have personal feelings in a more heightened level than regular Sfarim because of their extreme level of Kedusha belonging to the Hanasi who Hakal, the Nasi who composes the generation, it means they actually feel like they are imprisoned at this very moment and there's a tremendous pain they are going through during all this time. Enough pain that you should share the concept of Pidyan Shfuyim, which means what the Rebbe referred to when books or manuscripts came out from wherever they were, he called them actually Pidyan Shfuyim, which is redeeming the hostages with the Sfarim, that their pain is similar to that of a human being suffering in prison or possibly even more. Okay. Interesting way of phrasing the question, but to me the question really comes down to inanimate objects have feelings or not. Now we know that it says the Chassid is brought in Tanya Sharichot Vamuna from Eitz Chaim, that just like there's a nefesh hamedaberes, there's a soul in the, in the human being that speaks, the, the, the speaking human being, there's a nefesh hachiyunis, a live soul, a soul of an animal soul and an animal, nefesh hatzemechas, a vegetable soul, a growthing, a, 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 a nefesh hatzemechas in tzemeach, it's a particular type of nefesh, and a nefesh adememes in demem, inanimate. A nefesh means vitality. Even an even, even inanimate stone has energy in it. Now, human beings are definitely defined by their consciousness. We know animals definitely also have consciousness. Does a plant or does a demem, does an inanimate thing have consciousness? The Rambam speaks about the, the sun and the moon and the celestial bodies, that they're balidea, that they have consciousness. But the question is, does everything have consciousness? Based on the Rambam, you could assume, he didn't, since he's saying it specifically about them, doesn't mean every stone has consciousness. On the other hand, what does consciousness mean? You could have the stone, have an inanimate thing, could have consciousness, but not consciousness as we have it, where we can talk about it, where we sense ourselves. A daemon may have a connection, it knows it's fulfilling God's will, but what does knowing mean? Knowing means it doesn't sense as we sense, it's just doing what it has to do. And who says being conscious in a way that you sense or feel it is the key to everything? As a matter of fact, you could argue that when you're immersed in something, you don't sense that you're doing it because you're so immersed in it. As soon as you're conscious, there's already a subject and an object. So this is a good question. When you talk about, for example, you say when the challah, you cover the challah, not to embarrass the challah. Is the challah really being embarrassed? Or is it more figurative in the sense that we sense that the challah should, should have its own value? And when you cover it, what, the challah can't see through the tablecloth, through the, the, the challah cover. So you can say it doesn't mean literally that the challah is embarrassed. It's more a sensitivity that everything, just like, for example, when you go leg ladosh, you don't do something in a, by, a, by an oil where people cover, you hide your tzitzis. Is it because they physically see your tzitzis? It's a demonstration of sensitivity to those around you. Whether they see it or not is not the point, it's the sensitivity. You could argue like that, or you could say, yes, in some way they do sense. We say, Evan Bekir Tizak, when Mashiach comes, the stones in the wall will cry out. The tree will tell you it's Shabbos today or it's Shemitah today. Now, does that mean Tizak? Does it mean literally crying out? Will they make a sound? Or will they make you aware? So to say that existence absorbs everything that happens around it, absolutely. Even inanimate things absorb. To say that they experience, absolutely, because there's a divine element in it. They're not just inanimate. There's energy. There's divine energy. So you take a mineral, or you take salt, or you take a mineral, and you make a brach on it, and you eat it, not only a fruit, even a mineral, 
Everything was created by your word, this object as well. The question is whether the, that food or that mineral senses it the way we sense. I would say it doesn't sense the way we sense. It has its own way of sensing things and is, as it fulfills what needs to be filled. And this will have pain if you do with it something that shouldn't be appropriately done. But the pain is not the pain of, of, of crying out or blood or the, 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 the grief and sadness. Do stones cry? Obviously they don't. But you could say, in a certain way, because they are created by God, when the world is not doing what it should be doing, and they're being used for negative things, there's a certain cosmic pain involved in that level. What needs to be explained, how that manifests. But you can explain it through the nefesh. The nefesh of it senses something. Even if it's not balidei, it's not an unintelligent creatures. Same thing with svarim. The same thing with all things that we have, when a safer, one safer certain svarim should be in order of how they're placed. Just like there's an order of how you give honors to a Talmud Chochem, to a, to a teacher, to a student, for the same reason. So there's no question that type of priority. So it's, it's not just a Gavada thing, I'm saying, not just for the person that we should be more sensitive, but it's also the object itself perhaps also participates in that uh, sensation on the terms of that particular object, which may be something we'll never realize, realize or ever know. So with that, we conclude this episode of My Life Chassidus Applied, episode 200. 200. I want to wish everybody Yuzchav Beishvat to the fullest as we go into Shabbos and Varchim Odin, Marben Besimcha, in fulfilling the, mess, the mission that we were given, Yafutsa Maynesecha Chutza, applying Chassidus to our lives, to becoming more refined, refining those around us, refining the world around us, Zichuch Atzmei, refining yourself, Zichuch Ha'elam, and doing our part to finally make the world ready for the Rebbe told us it's already ready and doing our little step of opening our eyes and accepting and revealing the Gula Amitiz Vashlema. We're here every Sunday, 8 to 9 p.m. My life, Chassidus applied. Everyone have a very blessed week. Thank you.